0: On the evening of April 17, 2013, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a man by the name of Dr. Robert Ferrante dialed 911 after his wife, Dr. Autumn Klein, suddenly collapsed on their kitchen floor. As paramedics arrived, Autumn was gasping for air and unable to speak. Upon arriving at the hospital, Dr. Klein's blood pressure and pulse dramatically started to drop and soon her heart functions were beginning to crash. Immediately, doctors began emergency life-saving measures. They were losing her. A vibrant 41-year-old woman with no history of medical conditions was dying. Join me now as we take a closer look into a marriage between two highly regarded and successful doctors. A power couple, who despite a 23 year age difference, appeared to have created a quintessential life. Together, we'll delve into a marriage filled with mistrust, resentment, and unfound jealousy. We'll also discover how the prospects of a new child led to the unthinkable. Autumn Klein was born on November 30th 1971 in baltimore maryland to lois and bill klein as an only child autumn was raised in one half of a town home while on the other side lived her aunt autumn's aunt had a daughter named sharon who was just 17 months older than autumn and because they were so close in age sharon and autumn naturally spent a lot of time together Over time, they became more than cousins. They were best friends. In fact, they were so close that Sharon even had her own bed in Autumn's bedroom and spent every weekend over at her home. Sharon remembers Autumn at a very early age, showing an interest in caring for people. The girls would often open up a makeshift doctor's office where a steady flow of patients would arrive consisting of stuffed animals and pets who came far and wide to be treated by the aspiring dr autumn growing up sharon recalled autumn's mother lois as being the stricter of the two parents while autumn's father bill was more laid back one fond memory include autumn's dad dancing around the kitchen on weekends listening to 50s music while making the girls pancakes. The kind of warm moments a child never forgets. In seventh grade, Autumn's biology class visited John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. The first American private research university that had been founded in 1876 and was considered among one of the world's top universities. It was at that moment Autumn knew she just had to pursue her dream of becoming a doctor. In 1989, she was accepted to Amherst College and she started attending that fall. The neuroscience program was one of the first of its kind in the country and only a dozen students majored in it each year. When it came time to pick a medical school Autumn had her eyes set on Boston University. However, her mother Lois wasn't keen on the idea of her daughter moving so far away from home. She was overprotective of her only child, as would be expected, and so she tried her best to convince Autumn to attend a university that was closer. But by that time, Autumn had become a determined young woman and knew just what she wanted there was no convincing her otherwise. So, it was then that Autumn entered into a prestigious MD-PhD program at Boston University. The intense workload required two years of medical school, three years of PhD work, and two years of rotation through various medical specialties. All throughout her studies, Autumn always pushed herself and purposely chose the toughest classes and the most difficult rotations. She was determined to become the best doctor she could be. In 1995, during her PhD program, Autumn was assigned to work at a lab at Bedford, Virginia Medical Center. It was there that she was assigned as a student to Dr. Bob Ferrante. Despite their considerable age gap, which was more than 20 years, The two still seemed to have a lot in common, and they fell in love. Never hesitating to pursue her aspirations, two years after they met, Autumn and Dr. Ferrante were married. And on the very same weekend as her graduation from med school... Dr. Robert Ferrante, known as Bob to friends, was born on October 21st, 1948. Bob and his two older siblings lived with their father on a quiet street located in a working-class suburb of Boston. Bob's father, James, was a pastry chef and often juggled two jobs at a time in order to make ends meet. He wanted more for his kids, and so he worked tirelessly to ensure he could afford to put them through private school. After graduating in 1966, Bob went on to earn a bachelor's degree at the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, as well as a master's degree in neuroscience a year later. In the 70s, Bob married his first wife, Diane, at the age of 22. After having two children together, The couple remained married for 17 years before getting a divorce, and Bob became the primary caregiver. By all accounts, he was a doting father. He drew funny faces on the kids' lunch bags, attending all their school and sporting events. Bob kept things running smoothly with the help of a 3x4 corkboard he built and hung in the kitchen, listing all their planned activities. After school, Bob focused on neuropathology and he soon started actively researching ALS and Huntington's disease. Even without an advanced degree, Bob still managed to establish himself as someone considered highly successful in his field. In 1992, Bob enrolled in a special program at Boston University, where he eventually met Autumn Klein. After marrying, the couple were both doing extremely well in their professions. And a few years later, they had a baby girl. Life was good, but the doctors had even bigger aspirations. One they felt couldn't be accomplished in Boston. In 2011, both Autumn and Bob were offered positions at the University of Pittsburgh and its renowned sister medical center. For Bob, the move meant a new research lab. And for Autumn, it meant the opportunity to head her own department. It seemed like an ideal career move. And so they made the decision to move. But there was still more that Autumn wanted. She absolutely loved being a mother and hoped to have at least one more child. However, she was in her early 40s, and the prospects of conceiving again were becoming more difficult. Autumn soon started taking fertility drugs and getting hormone injections, but nothing seemed to work. As time went by, the thought of not having another child started to eat away at her. She was willing to try anything. In 2013, Bob told Autumn about a fertility doctor who believed the bodybuilding supplement called creatine could help women become pregnant. It just so happened that Bob had also been using the supplement in his research. It seemed harmless and was a chance they were willing to take. April seventeenth, two 2013 was an exciting day for Autumn. She'd been diligent in keeping track of her ovulation cycle, which according to her calendar meant she would be ovulating the following day. In anticipation, Autumn texts Bob to remind him, and he texts back with the word creatine, along with a smiley face. It wasn't unusual for Autumn to work long hours, and on that particular day, she hadn't returned home until closer to midnight. But Bob waited up for her, and he prepared a creatine drink for her before they headed to bed. Minutes later, at 11.52 p.m., Dr. Robert Ferrante was making a frantic call to 911.
1: know one with the others. you oh, Hello. Please, please, please. I'm at 219 Litton Avenue. I think my wife is having a stroke. Please. Okay. What, what city? Uh, Tosh- Man, Tosh- Bur- okay. Slow down. What city Tosh- are you in? Please. I- I'm in Oakland. We just moved here a year ago. Okay. What bro. city? What city? Tosh- Bur- Bur- what city are you in? <laughs> I'm in Pittsburgh. Okay. This is this a house or apartment, sir? It's a, it's a house. Okay. What's your it's name? Okay. My name Bob Ferrante. Please, please. Okay. Just hang on a line, Bob. They're, they're coming. What's the phone number you're calling from? I'm calling from my cell phone. Um four one two please, please hurry. Okay, she's okay. Staring. Bob, calm down. Okay, you think you might, she might be having she might be having a stroke? Yes, yes, she's okay, been, are, she are you, right, okay listen. Okay, listen. Are you with her now? Yes, yes, right in front of her. And how old is your wife? My wife is 42 years old. Okay, is she awake? At home from work. Listen to me, is she she awake? Yes, yes. Is is she breathing? Yes, she's breathing. Okay, what makes you think she's having a stroke? She's just staring and can't answer. uh, Has she she ever had a stroke before? No, she hasn't, but she's had these episodes the past four... All right, is she completely... Hey, listen, is she completely alert? No, she cannot... She's not responding to me. Okay, is she breathing normally? Yes, sir. she's breathing normally. Okay, you said she's just she, staring off. Is she not having any, any speech staring. problems or weakness or paralysis or no, no, anything like that? No, 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 and she has this sort of, like, athetoid uh, hand all stiff. I'm running to the front door to open it. Okay, when did he, when the time did these symptoms start? How long ago? Oh, About 10, 10 minutes maximum. About 10 minutes ago? Yes. Okay, they're <laughs> already on the way to the property, okay? Not the, not, it's not delaying the call whatsoever. And you said she's never had a stroke before, correct? Never had a stroke before, but she's had these issues like TIAs.
0: After a 12-minute call with the emergency dispatcher, paramedics finally arrived at Bob and Autumn's home. As EMTs worked at assessing Autumn's condition, Dr. Ferrante tried to explain to them that he had just given his wife a creatine drink. But just then, Autumn's vital signs began to crash. Paramedics rushed Autumn to the nearest hospital, which happened to be just half a mile down the road. The same hospital where both she and Bob worked. The hospital she had only just left 30 minutes prior. Upon arriving in the ER, doctors immediately recognized that Autumn was one of their own and they wasted no time. They inserted a breathing tube and they started to perform emergency life saving support. A broad spectrum blood panel was also ordered. However, they were unable to access any of Autumn's veins. While doctors worked frantically to stabilize her, Dr. Ferrante arrived at the scene. He explained to doctors that Autumn had come home complaining of a headache when she suddenly collapsed to the floor. Based on Bob's description, Doctors began to suspect that Autumn was experiencing a massive brain hemorrhage. At that point, they abandoned all attempts to draw blood in order to CT T-scan of her head. To their utter shock, the images were clear. Additional scans of her chest, abdomen, and pelvis were also clear. Doctors were stumped. They had no clue what was happening to Autumn, and they were running out of ideas. Still unable to obtain a blood sample from Autumn, it was quickly determined that a central line needed to be placed directly into her heart. After successfully establishing the line, the first blood sample was drawn at 12:58 a.m. Almost an hour after Autumn had first arrived at the hospital, All attending physicians were shocked when they began to see a neon-colored blood running through Autumn's line. Right away, doctors ordered a toxicology screening. As the medical team discussed their next course of action, Bob Ferrante mentioned that his wife would never want to live if she couldn't continue to do the work she loved so much. The timing of his comments seemed off, considering the team was nowhere close to giving up. Bob eventually contacted Autumn's parents in Maryland and let them know that their daughter had been admitted to the ER. The hospital was a four-hour drive away, and as Autumn's parents raced against time to get there, all they could do was pray. Back at the hospital, Bob started discussing whether or not an autopsy should be performed on his wife's body should she die. At 2.17 a.m., Autumn lost her pulse completely and went into cardiac arrest. The team disconnected her ventilator and began bagging her airway manually, while nurses took turns performing chest compressions. For 22 minutes, they continued to perform CPR with no response. It was then that one of the physicians asked if the team was ready to call Autumn's time of death. But another doctor, who was a colleague and friend of Autumn's, refused to give up. She asked everyone to try one more time with another round of drugs and compressions. Miraculously, on the last attempt, there was a spontaneous pulse, and after using a defibrillator, they managed to stabilize Autumn's heart. Although she wasn't conscious or responsive, she was still alive. And at that point, it was more than they could have hoped for. The treatment team then placed Autumn on a type of dialysis machine which removed and filtered blood from her body while returning properly oxygenated blood back into her system. Surprisingly, the procedure was successful. Autumn's heart rate had returned to a stable 70 beats per minute. When Dr. Ferrante returned to the ER with his cup of coffee in hand, he was surprised to learn his wife was still alive and in stable condition. As Autumn's treatment team continued to scratch their heads, one physician suggested running a test for cyanide, taking Autumn's neon-colored blood into consideration. Another toxicology request was then sent out to a lab called Quest Diagnostics. At 5.30 a.m., Dr. Klein was stable enough to be moved to the ICU. But upon hooking her up to an EEG machine, staff soon realized the lines monitoring her brain activity were flat. The prognosis wasn't looking good. Two hours later, Bob met with a hospital social worker and mentioned his wife's parents were in town. However, wasn't sure if they were planning on coming to the hospital. In reality, he'd actually told his in-laws to stay put at his home until his adult children had arrived, who were traveling from Boston and San Diego. When Bob finally did permit Autumn's parents to see their daughter, Lois noticed right away that the lines on the EEG monitor were flat. Instinctively, she realized that that her daughter was no longer with them. Over the next two days, Autumn's parents spent much of their time by the daughter's side. They even brought their granddaughter, Autumn's daughter, to the hospital to sit by her mother's bed. At one point, the six-year-old turned to her grandma and said, she didn't think her mom would be coming home again. As it became increasingly clear that Autumn would never recover, Bob started to talk about Autumn's desire to be an organ donor mentioning that there was no need for an autopsy. But doctors caring for Autumn disagreed. If the cause of Autumn's collapse had been due to a heart rhythm disturbance, it could be genetic, which meant their young daughter could also be at risk. Autumn's mother Lois agreed with the doctors, while Bob remained against it. Bob was so surprisingly adamant against an autopsy that several of the treating physicians felt compelled to note it in Autumn's chart. On April twentieth, two 2013, at 12.31 p.m., Autumn was taken off life support and two doctors officially declared her deceased. following day, Autumn's body was transported to the county medical examiner's office, where a full autopsy was performed. A pathologist who examined Autumn noted that there were no signs of blockages in her arteries or lungs. The medical examiner decided to send Autumn's heart and brain to two separate pathologists, who could perform a more extensive exam and hopefully provide some answers. The autopsy report stated that the cause and manner of death was undetermined, pending the results from the heart and brain examinations as well as the toxicology results. The next day, Autumn's body was released to the funeral home, where Dr. Ferrante requested her to be cremated. Meanwhile, one of the physicians who had been working on Autumn in the ER was going over her chart one more time when he noticed that the test results for the cyanide toxicology had been returned from Quest Diagnostics. As he looked them over, he was shocked to see that the lab results had indicated a fatal dose of 3.4 milligrams of cyanide per liter in Autumn's blood. He immediately notified the county medical examiner's office. Accordingly, The M.E. requested the funeral home return Autumn's body so he could conduct additional testing. However, it was too late. Autumn had already been cremated. The examiner then called the county crime lab and asked them to run their own cyanide test using the blood samples that had already been collected during the autopsy. Although it wouldn't be a quantitative test, it would at least confirm whether or not cyanide had been present in Dr. Klein's system. After only four minutes of testing, the blood sample turned a dark purple, indicating that Autumn's blood was positive for cyanide. With the cause of death finally determined, the next step was to find out how cyanide managed to get into Dr. Klein's system in the first place. Longtime homicide detective Jim McGee and his partner Robert Provident were the two detectives assigned to the case. It was their job to find out as much as they could about the victim. Was it possible that Autumn had taken the poison herself? Or had she been exposed to it accidentally? Or could it be that someone had deliberately poisoned her? The first course of action was to speak to as many of Autumn's friends, family, and colleagues as possible gaining a better insight into Autumn's personal and professional life. All those interviewed by detectives said with absolute certainty that Autumn would never have committed suicide. She loved being a mom too much and was hopeful about becoming pregnant again. She was also extremely passionate about her work and was excited to be working on several research projects. None of which included the use of cyanide. With both the possibility of suicide and accidental exposure to cyanide ruled out, that left only one other possibility. Deliberate poisoning. the detectives felt it was time to have a chat with Dr. Robert Ferrante. When Pittsburgh detectives questioned Bob, he was calm and cooperative, answering all their questions without hesitation. He told them that he and his wife had been happily married for more than 10 years and were in the midst of trying to have a second child. Autumn had undergone three rounds of IVF and she started on a creatine regimen which he provided for her. He did, however, fail to mention that he had made her a creatine drink minutes before she collapsed on the floor that evening. When detectives asked if Autumn had ever talked about killing herself, Bob responded by saying that she once mentioned being glad she lived in Pittsburgh because of all the bridges. This seemed to imply that he felt his wife had suicidal thoughts which was contrary to the description provided by everyone else that knew Autumn. Detectives then explained to Bob that his wife had died from a fatal dose of cyanide, but they suspected he already knew that, though, as it had become common knowledge throughout the hospital. Bob then gasped as if this were new information. Why would she do this to herself, Bob asked. Detectives then asked Bob, to provide them with all of Autumn's meds, including the creatine. Later, detectives met with Bob's boss, who told them a new bit of information. He told them that Bob had mentioned that he had made his wife a creatine drink just before she collapsed, a detail Bob had never mentioned to detectives. (laughs) Shortly into their investigation, detectives discovered that Dr. Ferrante had made a purchase for cyanide just two days before his wife's death and had asked for it to be expedited overnight. With this new bit of information, the detectives knew they needed to obtain a search warrant for both Ferrante's house and lab. The first of over a hundred search warrants was drafted. And later that evening, 10 detectives descended upon Ferrante's home. The following day, a search team was sent out to his lab. Recovered from the lab that day was a 250-gram bottle of cyanide, with the safety seal broken, along with several computers and containers of creatine. Although prosecuting attorney... Lisa Pellegrini already had enough circumstantial evidence in order to charge Dr. Ferrante with murder, she wanted the investigation to continue a little while longer to see if a motive could be established. She wanted to be able to give jurors a conclusive answer as to why. On May 10, 2013... Lois and Bill Klein held a memorial service for their daughter at Grace United Methodist Church in Baltimore. It was a service of celebration and remembrance for the life of Autumn Marie Klein. The detectives both attended the service and stayed behind afterwards to talk to friends and family. They hoped to find out more about Autumn's marriage Her cousin Sharon told investigators that Autumn had confided in her about some recent marital problems. Bob apparently felt that Autumn worked too much and didn't spend enough time with their daughter, often only seeing her for a few hours a week. Sharon said that her and Autumn would catch up and talk during her daily commutes, but that her calls would often be interrupted by Bob, calling sometimes every five minutes. Sharon felt it was his way of keeping Autumn isolated from her friends and family. She believed that Autumn was being emotionally and verbally abused by Bob and that he exerted coercive control over her. Sharon said that Autumn had confided that she believed her marriage would soon be over. After Autumn's memorial service, Detectives also managed to speak with a colleague and close friend of Autumn's, named Dr. McElrath. He told detectives about the work he and Autumn collaborated on, and specifically about a medical conference they had attended in San Francisco earlier that year. He recalled Autumn getting a text message from her husband, announcing that he was flying out to meet her, McElrath recalled Autumn feeling that this was Bob's way of trying to control her. He also mentioned her confiding in him that she planned on getting a divorce. After searching Bob's computer, detectives later found out that shortly after Autumn returned home from her conference in San Francisco, Bob had conducted several internet searches, which included... Divorce in Pittsburgh, and Suicides on Golden Gate Bridge In May, Dr. McElrath and Autumn had another conference they both planned on attending, being held in Boston. McElrath kindly offered for Autumn to stay at his home while she was there, and she agreed. However, on April 13th, just four days before Autumn's death, she sent McElrath a text, which read, Change of plans husband is coming to Boston to keep me out of trouble. He replied, oh dear, did you know you were in trouble? She responded by texting, I feel like I've been in trouble for a while now. The conversation was enough to provide detectives with probable cause in order to go through Autumn's phone. Detectives discovered months before Autumn's death in February, she and Bob had been having a fight via email over his lack of support. In her trying to get pregnant, Autumn confessed that she hadn't been happy for a while. She suggested it was time for them to sit down and have a serious talk. In another email, she wrote,
2: I hate to say it, Bob. While in body you have done your duty, you have not been there for me. Sorry, I am angry about all of this both not having another kid and your lack of interest. Anytime you want something, you are like a dog with a bone. In this case, you have not asked pertinent questions until the last minute, after it is all over. Too little, too late. It is clear you are not interested. I realize now I have been alone in this entire emotional journey. I am going to speak my mind as you do and be angry because this is the only means of conversation you seem to get is anger. You stink at picking up on almost all other emotions. I am sorry. Right now, I cannot talk to you in person. I can't even speak to you without getting angry.
0: Days leading up to Autumn's death, she and Bob were fighting through email again. This time it was about the Boston Conference. Autumn explained that she wanted to attend the conference alone and was hoping to spend her extra time working on some research projects. What Autumn didn't realize at the time was that Bob was reading all of her emails to Dr. McElrath and knew she'd been planning on staying with him it was beginning to look like Dr. Ferrante suspected his wife of having an affair. On April 16th, the night before Autumn died, Bob responded by email with an apology. That same day, he also made the rush order for cyanide. On May 28th, during another search warrant, this time, For Ferrante's financial records, detectives stumbled upon a shredder with a number of shredded documents nearby. Some heavy yellow-bonded paper stood out from all of the rest of the shredded paper, and the detectives decided to have it put back together. They soon realized what they'd found was a letter written from Dr. Ferrante. It was addressed to his two older children from his first marriage, his young daughter from his marriage with Autumn, And also his older sister. It appeared to be a goodbye note, and it read
3: Words cannot express my deep and undying love for each and every one of you for oh so many reasons. You have all been my rock for many years, my reason for living. The memories I've had with each of you could carry multiple lifetimes for any person. I've been very fortunate in having each of you in my life. I want you to remember those times and keep them close to your heart and in your mind. Not the horrific and inexplicable events that have happened over the past three weeks. This experience has taken an incredible toll on me. One that I can no longer burden. While I remain steadfastly adamant that I did not take Autumn's life, I no longer have the strength to carry the weight of losing her. It has been too great a weight for me to carry. Please, forgive my weakness. I will miss each and every one of you. Please keep working hard as well as not forgetting to enjoy the successes, even the small ones. Sometimes we forget to celebrate the simple things. Bless each of you for being in my life. I'm so sorry for not physically remaining in your lives. I'm with Autumn. Love, Dad.
0: After discovering the letter, the ADA went about drafting a probable cause warrant against Ferrante, laying out in detail a strong, but circumstantial case. The prosecutor believed the motive was jealousy. With the ever-present media squatting just outside Bob's home, he was convinced it was time for him to leave Pittsburgh. After spending a month in California, Visiting one of his older children, Bob then headed to Florida, where he went to go see his sister. By the time detectives had enough evidence to arrest Ferrante, they realized he'd left town. After discovering he was staying with his sister in Florida, detectives flew down to bring him in. But after arriving at her home, they were surprised to discover that he'd taken off again.
1: Pittsburgh police had gone to St. Augustine, Florida to Ferrante's sister's home to arrest him. Florida law enforcement there had turned out in force. His six-year-old daughter was there, but he was not. Police say when they learned he was driving back to Pittsburgh and passing through here in West Virginia, troopers in this state used law enforcement license plate tracking technology to get him.
3: Without the assistance of that license plate reading system, I mean, that was a very effective law enforcement tool in assisting us and in, in apprehending him.
0: After being extradited from jail in West Virginia back to Pittsburgh, the trial for Autumn's murder began on October 23rd, 2013. (sighs) After the jury filed into the courtroom, the judge presiding explained that the first-degree murder charge that Dr. Bob Ferrante was facing must include malice, which is the intent to kill with the extreme indifference to the value of human life. Ironically, one of Dr. Ferrante's internet searches prior to his wife's death was for the meaning of malice murder. DA Lisa Pellegrini then began her opening statements. Autumn Klein was an amazing woman, she said, a brilliant neurologist, a beloved and respected colleague, friend and mother. Autumn Klein was what you would call a shining star. She was passionate about her field, but was no longer passionate about her older and controlling husband. She was unhappy in her marriage. Things just weren't working out. She desperately wanted another child. Not so much because she was in love with the defendant anymore, but because she was an only child of older parents. She was always afraid that if something happened to her, her daughter would be all by herself. The prosecutor went on to talk about Autumn's friend and colleague, Dr. McElrath, and she surmised that Dr. Ferrante believed he'd become an obstacle in their marriage. She then went over the series of events the night Autumn collapsed. Next, she mentioned how suspicions were raised when ER doctors saw the color of Autumn's blood and received the toxicology results back indicating the presence of cyanide at a fatal level. Not to mention Ferrantes' badly timed discussions about whether an autopsy should be performed on his wife, while physicians were still fighting to save her life. She then told the jury that Dr. Ferrantes' computer and his research inquiries told an enlightening story. How he'd made several searches on cyanide poisoning, Dr. McElrath, and suicides on Golden Gate Bridge. Pellegrini explained the unusual purchase and overnight rush delivery of cyanide to Dr. Ferrante at his lab, a chemical he doesn't use in any of his research studies, and a chemical that had been ordered just two days prior to his wife's sudden collapse. The bottle of cyanide found in his lab had been opened, had the defendant's thumbprint on it, and was missing approximately 8.3 grams. The prosecutor then told the jury that the day after Autumn was cremated, the defendant began doing internet searches on Detecting Cyanide Poisoning and Dialysis Removal of Toxins. He also made a search about How a Coroner Can Detect If Someone Is Killed by Cyanide and How to Permanently Delete Your Browser History. The prosecutor concluded her opening statements by accusing the defendant of thinking he was smarter than everyone else that he was a master manipulator she asked the jurors to put together the pieces of the puzzle and then they would realize that Ferrante killed his wife because he was afraid she was going to leave him she told the jury that Bob gave Klein a poison drink called 911 and then stood over her while he watched her suffer Next, it was the defense's turn. In a conversational tone, he started off by explaining to the jury just how very complicated the whole case was. He said there would be a lot of terms and technical jargon that he didn't even understand. He asked them not to get confused by smoke and mirrors. He then went on to explain how neither he nor the defendant or any of his experts agree that Autumn Klein died from cyanide poisoning. He told the jury that there were in fact a lot of discrepancies when it came to Autumn's lab results. Two toxicology screenings came back with different calculations, another lab completely lost a sample, and then there was the mere fact that Autumn Klein's organs were donated, which he stated indicated she couldn't have died from cyanide poisoning. He explained that the defendant, who was a loving husband, father, and respected doctor, had nothing to do with his wife's sudden collapse and subsequent death. In fact, he stated the only reason why they were all there in that courtroom that day was because of a laboratory named Quest Diagnostics, which gave the wrong levels of cyanide. the defense attorney stated that Autumn had become obsessed with getting pregnant again. And although Dr. Ferrante had expressed not wanting another child, the defense attorney promised that Bob had still been supportive. And that's precisely why he ordered Autumn the creatine supplement in order to help with her fertility. They would later hear more from the pathologist about the possibility of creatine producing a false positive for cyanide in test results. Bob's attorney stated that on top of all the faulty lab results, Autumn's symptoms hadn't mimicked cyanide poisoning either. However, they had been consistent with symptoms of a stroke or cardiac event. If it had been cyanide, which was the basis of the prosecution's entire argument. Why had it taken so long for Autumn to die? The defense gave a short history lesson, explaining how cyanide had become the poison of choice for Nazis because it was a rapid knockdown agent, essentially starving the body of oxygen. If Autumn had ingested cyanide, the defense argued that she should have been dead within five minutes. But that wasn't the case for Autumn. She had hung on to life for three entire days before being declared deceased. So he asked the jury this question. Absent of all these symptoms, how had the diagnosis become cyanide poisoning? One reason. Because Quest Diagnostics Laboratory said so. The pivotal blood sample that had been taken directly from Autumn's heart and sent out to the National Medical Services Laboratory, a lab considered the gold standard, had come back inconclusive for cyanide. So, the defense questioned why the Quest results had trumped the NMS's lab results. After speaking for 44 minutes, Ferrantes' attorney finished his opening statements. One by one, the prosecutor then called her witnesses, who were then cross-examined by the defense. After both technicians from the different labs took the stand, next to testify was one of the detectives who had been working on the case he shared with the courtroom all the emails and text messages they'd discovered between Autumn and Bob the months and days leading up to her death. When it was the medical examiners turn to testify, he stated that it was his regular practice to release a body when even the cause of death is still pending. He stated that the final cause of death for Autumn was Homicide. The heart specialist who examined Autumn's heart had discovered she had a rare heart condition found in only 2% of the population, but it was a condition he believed wouldn't have affected her until later on in life. The medical examiner went on to testify that Autumn Klein's entire brain had died due to a lack of blood and oxygen, which is also consistent with a toxic ingestion of cyanide. The defense then called their star witness, Dr. Cyril Wecht. Wecht had previously served as coroner and medical examiner for the county, and had earned himself an international reputation in his field. He previously consulted on the Kennedy assassination, as well as the deaths of John JonBenet Ramsey, Michael Jackson, and countless other celebrities. Wecht cut to the chase and stated that in the matter of Dr. Autumn Klein, both cause and manner of death should have been concluded as undetermined. As a former medical examiner himself, he testified that he would never have listed Dr. Klein's manner of death as homicide.
4: The uh, reports are highly conflicting, uh, completely inconsistent, and all of the technical defects have been pointed out in the testimony that you folks have covered. So then for me, functioning as a forensic pathologist, uh, what do I what do I do? How do I handle that case? One case shows a level that could indeed produce death, cyanide poisoning. The other level is within normal range from a top notch laboratory. And I can say not because If I wanted to in the courtroom, I can tell you and and take a lie detector test. National Medical Services, in my opinion, is the premier lab in the country. You name the case in which uh, drugs have been involved and they did the testing either originally or, you know, subsequently. So to ignore those results, just cast them aside and say, well, I'm going to run with the higher level and I'm going to sign the case out as a homicide. That's incredible to me.
0: He believed additional testing should have been done using Autumn's organ tissue. However, none were available because the medical examiner had released her body to the funeral home, where she was then cremated. On the 10th day of trial, the defense called Dr. Robert Ferrante to take the stand he began by giving the jury an overview of his marriage and background of his career. Bob said that he and Autumn were two of a kind and that the only real difference between them was their ages. With regard to his rushed delivery of cyanide, he testified he always wanted everything yesterday and that was no different in this case. While he agreed, he didn't have any past or current studies that involve cyanide. He claimed that he'd just received a large grant to begin working directly on ALS and intended on using cyanide in those studies. He continued on by stating that his wife had been feeling depressed about her inability to conceive and she'd written him an email expressing she didn't feel like he was being very supportive. He already had three beautiful children. She only had one, and she wanted another. That's when he suggested creatine to help with her fertility. He confirmed that in early 2013, he had seen some flirtatious emails between his wife and Dr. McElrath, which concerned him, but that he didn't believe they were having a full-blown affair. Bob then stated, that he hadn't made Autumn a drink with creatine when she got home that night. In fact, he told the courtroom he was actually upstairs when he heard Autumn arrive home. He said he didn't go down and check on her until she failed to come up after a short period of time. He said when he finally did go down to greet her, she suddenly grabbed her head and fell to the floor. And that's when he called 911. As far as internet browsing was concerned, he claimed there was nothing nefarious about his searches. That's just how his researcher mind worked. And when it came to Autumn's autopsy, it wasn't that he didn't want one. He was just worried it would prevent him from carrying out his wife's wishes to have her organs donated. On cross-examination, the DA started out by asking him about another toxin he'd been working with called 3-NP, a toxin that's typically used in studies in order to damage cells and ultimately cause death in lab animals. The prosecutor was trying to plant the idea that Dr. Ferrante had in fact experimented with other toxins on his wife before switching to cyanide. He denied knowing anything about the missing 8.3 milligrams of cyanide When asked why he was doing internet searches about cyanide while his wife was in the hospital, he responded by saying he was just very perplexed and that he tried to look up all kinds of issues associated with his wife's illness. He stated that he didn't want a divorce and only googled it after receiving his wife's email, saying it was time for a serious chat. But after they spoke, he said things improved between them. The DA then rested. The jury, consisting of eight men and four women, were tasked with deciding Dr. Ferrante's fate. There had been no eyewitness to see Robert putting cyanide in his wife's drink. But was all his other peculiar behavior and the evidence the detectives found enough to find him guilty? Apparently, it was. After two days of deliberations, the jury came back with a guilty verdict in the first degree. Then, on February 4th, 2015, it was time for Autumn's family to finally speak. Autumn's cousin Sharon gave a moving impact statement, but Autumn's parents were too upset to read theirs. So the judge read a statement that had been prepared by Lois to the courtroom. Her statement read, She was our only child. The light of our lives has now been extinguished. There is no longer peace in our lives. I certainly don't want to give him credit, but he has ruined our lives. The judge then sentenced Dr. Robert Ferrante to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. Lois and Bill had lost their only child, a daughter they were so incredibly proud of, loved, and adored. No amount of years for Bob Ferrante will ever bring her back to them. Autumn Klein's life was not only taken from her, but it was taken from everyone who knew and loved her. And her young daughter has lost both of her parents. We can't even begin to imagine the unsurmountable loss she has experienced in her short life. We are thankful She has a loving family around her that will help keep her mother's memory alive. The woman who dreamed as a child that she would one day help to bring healing to people will no doubt live on in the lives of all those she touched with her compassion and kindness. I would like to thank Jamie Rice from the podcast Murderish and Scott Thrower from the podcast Fairy Tales for Unwanted Children for giving their voice to Bob and Autumn's Letters. And I would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Detroit, Annie Mae, and Hira Anjanette W James H Carol Vicky S Jackie L Jacqueline T Michael G Shell R Melanie M and Karen P. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts Beyond Your Nightmares.
3: Beyond Your Nightmares is a podcast that tells a mix of scary creepy pasta stories as well as those mysteries that make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up from the paranormal to the supernatural. Mysteries, strange deaths, conspiracy theories, and everything in between. New episodes released every two weeks. Listen to Beyond Your Nightmares on iTunes or anywhere you listen to great podcasts.
0: And fairy tales for unwanted children.
3: Once upon a time, there were dragons, fairies, wishes, and farmers. These aren't your happy endings for your overachievers, or your precious babes with bright futures. This is Fairy Tales for Unwanted Children. An excellent, unsettling podcast, says Tampa Dad 66 As calming as it is eerie, Becca James of AVClub.com. Wow, that was pretty good. You, about 15 minutes from now. Fairy Tales for Unwanted Children. UnwantedChildren.ca
0: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au. Slash Giuseppe
1: with this pen I can feel the madness. Some are standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Some are standing at my door. I hope they can't get in,
4: cause I'm not prepared to run.